Oh, good morning, guys. All right, uh, let's flip over to Acts chapter 17, and uh, we'll get started in a, a new section, a new city in Thessalonica, <clears throat> with a very similar result. <laughs> uh, there's uh, quite a few portions. You might notice, uh, I would want, not want to call it repetitive, but there's definitely uh, cycles that seem to take place in the book of Acts, in the letter uh, from uh, Luke, in that people show up, they preach the gospel, people get saved, people get mad, violence ensues, and they move on, and the same thing happens in another city. Uh, it's, a, it's actually pretty exciting, I think, not that I rejoice in violence or something like that, but that even amongst the worst conditions, the gospel uh, continues to uh, bear fruits. And honestly, it seems like the more adverse condition, uh, conditions the uh, more fruit the gospel seems to bear sometimes. So let's jump into Acts chapter 17, and let's get started. It says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, or Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and, pro- and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, excuse me, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disrupted, uh, excuse me, disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And we'll stop there. So what we have is Paul and Silas move along and uh, they come to Thessalonica. And a very similar thing happens. So you'll note that it says there, just in light of the the account of how this goes down, they show up and there is a synagogue. Remember, when they get to uh, uh, Philippi, there's no synagogue, and they go to a place where they believe prayer will be made. In this case, there is a synagogue, so they go to the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, so three Saturdays in a row, uh, technically the uh, the Sabbath was from Friday at sundown until Saturday at sundown, because the Jewish calendar worked a little different, the Jewish day did. But they go to uh, this this, synagogue, place for the Sabbath, the the synagogue, and they're preaching Christ. They're preaching that he suffered, they're preaching that he died, that he rose again from the dead, and that he is the Messiah. That's what he's telling them. And we'll come back to that, what their message is, after we kind of cover how it went down. So as they begin to preach Christ and his suffering and his death and resurrection, people start getting saved. They they begin to believe, and it's the, the Jews that are in the synagogue begin to believe, uh, then you have uh, the Greeks, other Greeks, that were, whether they were Hellenistic or however that went down, they start to believe in the city. And then uh, you got to love the kind of the Greek original negatives, the way they use it. 
uh, not a few women. So a lot of the leading women of the city, they begin to believe and to get saved. Now, it shouldn't be too odd to consider that when this begins to happen, the Jews become jealous. Well, why are they becoming jealous? Well, the people that were going to their synagogue are getting saved. And once you get saved, you don't go to synagogue anymore, right? So their, their congregation is shrinking. Not only that, there's, you have the rulers of the city, and, and they get upset too. Why? Well, you might recall that there's different times through the New Testament and just in history that in Rome, if you proclaimed a new king, if you, so you have Caesar, right? And all the Caesar's a title. If you're not familiar with that, you had Caesar Nero and Caesar Domitian and Caesar Titus and these different Caesars in that era or around those eras. And, and so he was believed not only to be king, but he was worshipped as a god. And that actually became a fulcrum for Christian persecution later on. But anyway... So if you were to proclaim anyone else as a king, it was a death sentence. You would be arrested and you would be slain. You, you were not allowed to proclaim any king except Caesar. So for the, the, the rulers of the city, when all of a sudden they hear this rumor that people are getting saved and they're saying, no, 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 in Rome and everywhere across the globe, there's a king that supersedes Caesar, that makes them nervous. Because if, if they're not squashing that as city leadership, if they're not saying, if they're not supporting Caesar and squashing the idea that there's another king, then Caesar will take his wrath out on them. Does that make sense? So the reaction of the city leadership is not rare or something to be surprised at. They're trying to save their own skin. I'm not necessarily justifying that. I'm just saying that's what's happening here. And this happened at other times. You might recall Pilate. Pilate also, one of the dynamics at work with Pilate, remember his wife comes to him and says, last night I had this crazy dream. She doesn't say crazy. That's my insertion. She says, I had this dream. And let me tell you something. Do not condemn this man. And have nothing to do with him. He's a righteous man. And so he has this warning from his wife not to condemn Jesus. And remember his behavior where he's like, hey guys, like, do you really want me to crucify Jesus? And they're like, yes. And he's like, okay, I'll tell you what. And he has him scourged. And then remember he brings him back out being scourged. Absolute bloody mess he would have been. It would have been the passion of the Christ was quite uh, conservative compared to how people actually looked after being scourged. Many people lost eyes from the flagellum, ripping them out. Most people exsanguinated in the scourging. They didn't even make it to the cross. But he brings Jesus back out in, in, in that mocker, the, the mocking gown, and he says, behold the man. And his point is like, look, I whooped him. He's been punished. Do you really want to crucify him? And they scream out. They say, no, crucify him. Well, there's, a, there's some, some historical context here that Pilate was in real trouble already with Nero, uh, or excuse me, um, with Caesar. He had, uh, he was very pompous. See, Rome as, a, as, a, as an entity, as a republic, or in different you know, times of their history, they, weren't, they used violence for an end. Obviously, they had the most uh, uh, sophisticated army. Their, their tactics were unbeatable, as they showed, as they dominated the known world. But their, their vision was light and peace. Rome truly thought that way. If you've ever seen Gladiator, one of those movies, you know, they always talk about the light of Rome. That's, that's really how they felt about it, that, that Rome was bringing this established light and order to the world. 
So Romans, the bulk of the Caesars and the leadership and even uh, the Senate and so forth, when that was kind of part of it, their, their goal was not to torment the people they conquered. Does that make sense? Their goal was to create this unified empire. And so when you had, whether it was a city leadership that was allowing someone else to proclaim another king, or Pilate, who, remember Jesus even refers to when Pilate takes, I, th- I think it's 18 people, 14, I can't remember, but he takes those certain amount of people, and he, he kill, they're killed, they're, they're executed, and then he takes their blood, and he mixes it with pig blood, and then offers it to uh, a false god. So he was known for basically provoking the Jews to riot. And so when Jesus was standing before him, he had actually already received notice from Caesar, if you cause another riot in this area, I will kill you. And that's why, for example, why Pilate is is saying, hey, let's not kill this guy. I don't want to cause a riot. The people love him, you know, all these things, but ultimately does kill him because the the Pharisees are, or I should say, allows him to be killed. Uh, the, the The Pharisees are stirring up this riot. So this leadership and how they worked and how they operated, this is pretty normal. And even the Jews and their jealousy, this is normal. When people give in to jealousy, all sorts of radical things can happen. And I, you love, I, personally, I really love this commentary because it says that he went to the rabble. The, the, the jealous Jews, they go to the rabble. Apparently there's, there's some corner uh, somewhere in Thessalonica. And you're like, excuse me, are you rabble? And they're like, yes, we are. And they're like, we need a riot. And they're like, we're rabblers. We're in. It's what we do. Great, sounds good. Here's what I need you to rabble. I need you to rabble rouse, and I need you to say that these guys are doing these things and cause a riot. And they're like, it's our lucky day. Let's rabble. So they go off, and they do their rabble thing, and they cause this huge riot. So in the riot, and the accusations are flying, all this stuff's going on, they, say, they figure out, somebody comes up, and they say, hey, these guys stayed at Jason's house. That's where they've been staying. And so this whole riot shows up at Jason's house, which I imagine was pretty disappointing for Jason. And they go in and they drag all these people out, Jason and his household, whoever that was. And they imprison them. And in the end, there might be, it might seem a little weird because there's some different English translations, but in verse 9 it says, And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, the idea here, some says they took a pledge, and that can be a little confusing, maybe like as if they pledged never to talk about Jesus again or something like that. But really what's, what's being said here is they, they basically they made bail. Does that make sense? They took a financial pledge and they, were, they would be tried later, which is interesting because it's never really mentioned again uh, what happens to them. or Jason is in, in the Bible, but, but, but they're not. And so here's, we're not going to talk about it too much, but it is noteworthy uh, that here's the non- Stars? Does that make sense? It's not Paul. It's not Silas. It's not Luke. It's the common folk, right? We're all common folk. But then they go to trial, and it costs them money. And, and, but they, they, Jason, anyway, he sticks with it through the work. And I think it's noteworthy that here they're just facilitating. Like He was just at their house, and it ends up costing their freedom, their money, and, and we have no idea what happened later when they, had to, when they had to go to trial. But it was worth it to Jason because he keeps on serving the Lord. But as we move on there, it says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So their response is like, hey, we just got out of jail. We had to pay money. And now, you know, you guys need to go. The rabble's after you, and there's a riot, and uh, we need need you to leave. And and so they leave. They they go to another place. And we'll cover that next week. 
But the point that I really want to bring up, aside from like what is happening here and kind of this whole picture, is what was said to cause this. Because you would think to cause this kind of a riot that there would have to be some sort of radical attack on society, right? Some sort of assault on uh, uh, Caesar himself or assault on the city or a personal assault on the rabble or something to get these people so offended that they say, we're going to drag you to prison and try to destroy this thing. But in fact, what it actually is, is that Jesus suffered, that Jesus died and rose again, and that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the message that causes this whole thing. Because it's the most important message that there is in the entire world. And it's the message, and this may sound dramatic, but it solves every problem. It encourages every heart. It is the answer to every dilemma. And it's the message that's hated most by Satan. And it's the message, I think, for me personally, and I don't know if you're like this, but it's the message that's easily, easiest, I don't think that's a word, but I made it. It's, it's the most easy to forget. I don't know, maybe this was familiar to you or maybe it's not. But I think for me personally and the people I know in my house and, and the people I have any kind of uh, uh, relationship with, and so I'm not making any accusations against anybody, but in general it seems like at one time or another, all the time, we're struggling with some sort of sin. Whether it's an attitude that you're trying to not give into, whether it's lust, whether it's some sort of addiction you're just trying to beat, whether it's anger, anxiety. It seems like there's very few days where you roll out of bed and you say everything is perfect. And you just kind of zippity-doo-dah, you know, and go out on your day and you skip out and there's just no problems. I don't know about you, but those days seem to be few and far between. It seems like the, the usual day, the usual uh, Christian days, there's obviously, I think for for many of us, and most of the time, there's an acknowledgement of victory, at least intellectually. There's an acknowledgement that the, the Jesus is on the throne and all these things, but yet there can still be this, this struggle with sin. And if you're like me, and the most of the people that I know, that struggle, sometimes you lose. You ever experience that? You lose the struggle, or we probably more accurately give up on the struggle. And we say something like, you know what, it doesn't really matter, I'll never be different anyway. Or we have some sort of urge or tendency that just seems so insurmountable, we finally just say, I'm just going to give up and do it. Whether it's gossiping and trash talking, or it's weed, or it's heroin, or it's porn, or whatever it might be, some sort of physical urge, and we just, we just give up because we go, I can't resist this anymore. Even it's funny, like, kind of back to the gossip topic, it's funny, have you, ever, have you ever had something, just some juicy tidbit, and you can almost feel it in your chest, like, this needs to get shared? No? Okay, well, God bless you guys. <laughs> if that wasn't real, then I don't think ET would be a network. I mean, <laughs> I don't think any of those magazines, any, they'd, be, they'd be gone. But as human beings, we love, we just got to get, we got to stand. It can be so tempting, like, oh, did you hear? And the same with any, you know, all the other fleshly urges that we can get or whatever it might be, even, even just the urge to be lazy. Like, I could get out of my chair or I could not get out of my chair and do what I think God wants me to do, right? I mean, that's just constantly, and sometimes we give up. And what happens when we give up, it's, it's fascinating because, see, just as Jesus has a purpose and he's faithful, right, Satan is faithful too. You ever notice that? 
Satan is crazy faithful. Jesus is faithful to us and what he wants to do in our lives, and he's faithful to his Father's purpose. Satan is faithful to himself and what he wants. And he's, he, and he's constantly ready and willing to accomplish that purpose. I don't know if you've read This is a side note, but there is a fantastic book by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And it may sound a little demonic, but just roll with me. It's, it's C.S. Lewis wrote it, and it's written from the perspective of a, uh, a young demon who gets assigned to, to this dude in World War II, and he's writing to his uncle, who's a senior demon, and he's trying to figure out how to stumble this guy that he's assigned to. Does that make sense? And, and, and so they're writing back and forth on how to uh, basically trick this guy and bring this guy and tantalize him, uh, tantalize him into sin. It's a... It's a uh, tremendous work. I, I, I think it's great. Some people got a little weirded out because it's the idea of demons communicating, but um, I don't think we have to. I think we'll be okay. Anyway, so that to be said, that there, because Satan is working and moving and we have this enemy of our souls, he's really faithful that when we're down and out in our sin, when we get stuck, if you're, you just felt stuck, I'm never going to change. You ever said to yourself, I will never change. Why am I still dealing with this? Why do I still think this way? Why do I still have this temptation? Satan is so faithful to come along at the right time, and I don't even know how it works, but to just whisper like, you're right. You're right. And not only are you right that you'll never change, that you'll always be this way, and you'll always be a failure, but then he mixes in something extra genius, and he says this, and God hates you for it. He despises you for it. He doesn't have worth for you because you act like this. And the crazy thing is we buy it, don't we? Because that's how we act. We're really good at assigning our own personal experience to other people and other entities, including God and so forth. Meaning the way we think is how we assume that everybody else thinks. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if I think a certain way, I always assume, like, just think about customs. When I was in England a couple years ago, I went into this store to buy a hat, and it was kind of this outdoor market thing, and I talked to the lady, I walked in, and it was actually, uh, to be fair, it was hats everywhere, and I didn't look at the title, but it was like, naughties and more. But to be fair, <laughs> Mark Oglesby was there too, so it was his fault, but we, it was hats. And then as I was looking through the hats, there was somehow underwear in the back, but I didn't go in the underwear. I was only looking at the hats. So anyway, there I am, chilling in naughties and more. And I say to this woman, I say, how are you? And she looks at me, and she goes, the store clerk, and she says, I'm okay. Um, you know, business is good, you know, all the, the whole thing. And uh, I'm like, all right on, cool. Yeah. And so I start looking at the hats. So I come out of the store, and I go, I asked the, the guy who was with us, I said, was it just me or was that lady like really weird when I asked her how she was doing? And he goes, well, yeah, you're American. And I'm like, darn tootin'. And he's like, he goes, you asked her basically like for the intimate details of her life. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, nobody says, how are you doing here? He says, you just ask him like, you just say Hello. It's like a, it's like, it could be like an insult. Like you're like, how are you? Because in America, we're like, how are you? I don't really care. I'm just saying that because that's the greeting. Like when you go to a store clerk and you say, yeah, I'll take this Snickers bar. How are you? You only want to hear, I'm fine. You don't want to be like, well, actually, last week I have this. And you're like, 
shoot, I should have just been honest. <laughs> so just that little thing. See, I thought she thought like I thought. Because clearly I just asked, how are you doing, as small talk. And I actually, I mean, I guess when it comes down to it, I probably would care. But ultimately, I'm there to buy a hat and stay out of the naughty section, not have some sort of huge discourse, unless it could have been an open door for the gospel, right? That's how we work. We assign our thoughts to everybody else. So because we esteem each person on how they've treated us, have you ever noticed how difficult it is to love someone who treats you poorly? To, to have a moral love for someone else and say, I just want the absolute best for you. We struggle with that. So we assume, because that is our personal experience, and with Satan whispering in our ear, God is upset. God does hate you. You aren't worthy. You are trash. We assume that God relates to us as we relate to others. Clearly, since I wrong him all the time, since I struggle with my own sin, since I choose sometimes to be stuck, and sometimes, have you ever, just, have you ever been so jacked that you're just like, I don't even know what's wrong? I don't even know why I do the things that I do. Have you ever read, this, one of my, that's the reason why Romans 7 is one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Bible. Because Paul, the superhero of Christianity, writes, even when I want to do good, I do evil. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. So I find that in my mind, I want to do good. But in my body, I find myself doing evil. That's Paul. It's the sinner's experience. It's the duality of nature. And so when we have that on a constant basis, the struggle of every day dealing with our unbelief, dealing with our anxiety, dealing with our hatred, with our anger, with our judgment, dealing with our addictions and all those things, we start to equate and we say, that's what God is like. Because if someone did that to me, I could not love them. It would be so hard for me. It would be a struggle. It would be cerebral love sometimes. But that's not who he is. And so this message that, that these guys preach, this, this message that is just absolutely hated and detested by Satan, this, this message that is at any cost Satan will squelch is this. Jesus suffered for you. Because that, that crosses all the lines. That, that slices through all the red tape of our minds and the way we think about God or try to relate to him. That he suffered for you and for me. And that he found you worth suffering for and still finds that. That's why it's such a destructive message to Satan's dominion. But because when we really realize who God is and the lengths that he went to have us in his presence, it eradicates the crazy ideas that we get about how he views us. He loves you. He truly loves you. He likes to see you when you get home kind of love. He looks, he looks forward to when he gets to hang out with you. He looks forward to dialoguing with you. He looks forward to hearing what you have to say. Sometimes we get so caught up. Have you ever been in your prayers and like something's not going right and you're like, oh, I don't want to complain. When the Lord says in Isaiah, pour out your complaints to me. When he says in, in 1 Peter, we read, cast your cares on me, because I care for you. See, we're not here to be whining and complaining and to take God for granted. We're not preaching that, but we're saying that he loves you so much. 
He cares about what you're going through. He sees you when you're going through it. And really the beckoning of his soul isn't condemnation and judgment to you, but it's in fact inclusion and listening to give you joy. So the things that he sets forward for us to walk in, these are not arbitrary rules to make our life miserable. These are, in fact, ways that we preserve the avenue in which he has given us to interact with him. Does that make sense? So the very walking with God is kind of the consummation of our relationship with God and opening up that venue so that we can experience what he really wants for us. So when we're having those difficult times in our life, when we're, having, when we're stuck in our sin, when we are rebelling, he loves you. He doesn't condemn you. There's a, a great passage, and some of you might be familiar with it, back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. One of the things that's fascinating about Isaiah 53 is that because of Christianity, back in the uh, early centuries of, of Christianity, uh, rabbis began to change Isaiah 53. And, and they began to, it was kind of deemed a forbidden chapter because it clearly spoke so uh, uh, accurately about who Jesus is and what he did. And, and as a kind of a side note, that's what made the Dead Sea Scrolls such an amazing find because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is like a basically perfect uh, copy of the bulk of Isaiah, including Isaiah 53, and it's ancient. And it's, it's this translation. And so what, what, the, what the Dead Sea Scrolls did in, 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 in one respect, or one of the aspects, is that they showed that it had been changed and that it actually it, it truly is a, a representation of who Jesus is. So Isaiah, writing ahead, it's funny, he's writing to the future, but he uses the past tense, which is, Tremendous, right? Because we know that because it was already done in eternity, the plan was fulfilled in eternity, Isaiah can write about the fact that this is in the future, but it's, it's what happened. Does that make sense? It's a tremendous prophetic writing. He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't look like Fabio or Brad Pitt or me. I'm just kidding. The <laughs> Couldn't resist. But it was the <laughs> me, Brad Pitt. The um, he was just a dude. He was a Jewish dude. And he didn't come with this, this physical majesty about him to attract people to him. He wasn't attractive. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So before we get to some of the physical sufferings of the cross, consider this for a second. He was despised. He came from heaven and he came to earth and he was despised. It's fairly, it's not fun to be hated. You know, have you ever been hated before? It's not fun to be hated. But being hated is oftentimes pretty easy to dismiss, right? We have little colloquialisms. We say, like, consider the source or something like that. And so it's, it's usually easy to be hated because you're like, ah, okay, I wish you didn't hate me. I'd like to invite you to church, but you do. It is what it is. It's, it's not typically very hurtful to be hated, although it could be. But being despised. 
When you despise someone, it's not just that you have a hatred for them. It's almost like a lack of hatred. Despising someone is a disesteem. In other words, you don't esteem them worthy of your feelings. That's the idea of being despised. I know in our, in our English language, we say, I despise that. And what we mean is, I hate that or I dislike that. But that's not what it means to despise. To despise is to say, you have no esteem in my eyes. You're not worth my time. I don't know, I don't hate you, I don't love you, I don't think anything about you, you're not worth getting to know. That's what hurts, isn't it? When someone just does not care and could not care. And interestingly enough, his creation that he created to walk with him in the garden, naked and not ashamed, could care less. He was despised by us. So he came from heaven to be despised because he cared about you and he cared about the people that despise him and he cared about us when we despised him. He cares. This is the most incredible message that's ever been. The fact that Jesus cares and loves and was willing to be despised. How far, let's be honest, how far are we willing to be despised by someone and continue to pour into their life? In the flesh, about 30 seconds. Without the Holy Spirit, without God working our hearts, we're like, oh, really? That's cute. All beyond my way. Right? And it's the end. And we, we just go, you're done. So when we consider the fact that this is how Jesus suffered, all of a sudden, all these weird like ideas of uh, wrath and... Um, condemnation and so forth, and how he relates to us when we're in our sin, all of a sudden they can begin to dissipate. All of a sudden those arguments in our mind or that are given to us by Satan, they begin to, they can't hold water. Because that's not who he is. It's not what he's doing, and it's not what he's ever done. He loves you, and he cares for you, and he suffered for you, because he wants you to be with him. It says then, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, inflicted. This is really normal. We had no idea what he was doing. And we see this. We see this in the response in, to, to the message then. We see this even in the apostles multiple times, whether it's in Matthew chapter 16. If you recall, Jesus says to the, the big 12 there, he says, who do men say that I am? They say, ah, oh, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, ah, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, high five. You didn't figure that on your own. My father revealed that to you. And then he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise from the dead. And it says that Peter took him. In our English, most English translations, they took him. But the word took is not just like he put his arm around him and said, Jesus, uh, that's, mm, no. The idea is that he shook him. He grabbed him. It means to take or to shake. Like this, this, so Peter is not like, oh, nah, Jesus, I don't think that's going to happen, my man. I think maybe there's a different plan for God. No, he grabs him and he says, this will never happen to you, Lord, which is a little ironic. And he says, no, you will not die and rise from the dead. That's not what's going to happen to you. That's crazy talk. And a couple days later, when they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus, literally his, his soul, his who he is intrinsically, shine through his flesh. 
And, and Peter has this crazy idea where he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a tabernacle for you so we can interact with you. And then we'll build one for Moses and Elijah also. And we can just tabernacle with everybody. And, and the father, it's the, probably the best line in the entire Bible. The father's like, shh, be quiet, Peter, and listen to my son. <laughs> like, aw. <laughs> There's a deflating moment in a guy's life. He says, shh, be quiet and listen to my son. So they see him, they're, they're coming back down the mountain, and Jesus says again, he says, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again from the dead. And it says they did not know what the resurrection of the dead meant. They had no, this is the big 12. These are the fellas. These are the guys that have been following him for like a year and a half, two years at this point. They had no clue what he was about to do. They had no idea how it was going to work out. And that was even most Jews. They were all about Jesus coming back and wrecking the Romans. They were all about Jesus bringing true social justice. They were all about all of that. But the idea that the Christ would suffer and die and be raised again from the dead, that was like, that was a no-go. And it's interesting because I think we have this, you know, this prophecy here. He's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken. He was misunderstood. We didn't even get the plan. How difficult is it to work with people that don't even understand the plan or that resist you every step of the way of the plan? Now, for us, we're faltered and our plan could be faltered, but this is Jesus' plan. And to bear with them. What would that have been like? Guys, I'm going to die. No, you're not. Get over it. That's a bad plan, Jesus. Just whoop the Romans. Right, all the way up into Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends into heaven, after he's resurrected. They're like, hey, is this when you return the kingdom to us? They're literally saying, hey, is this where you finally justify us as the Jews and destroy these Roman dogs? And he's like, no. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's not for you to know when that'll happen. You just serve me. Wait for me. Follow me. He bore our griefs. He knew what it was to weep. He knew what it was to hurt. He knew what it was to be rejected, to be despised, to be hated. He knew what it was to love and to lose. He loved John the Baptist. He wept at his death. He wept at the, at the death of the young man, for the, the offspring of the widow. He wept, at, he wept at Lazarus' death. He bore our griefs in ourselves. He knew what it was to have that tight chest feeling where everything just seems terrible. Where all you could do is cry and try to let it out. He knew that. He suffered for us. And here's this. We need to put this in right now. Is it so that you can feel guilty? No. It's so that you can be joyful at his love and at his kindness. None of this is written for our guilt. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Even Jesus himself said, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world. He said, if you reject me, yeah, there will be a condemnation from my law and from other things. But he says, I didn't come to condemn you. That's not my mission in life. His mission didn't change at the resurrection where it was like, oh, I'm not here to condemn you guys. But now that I have my glorified body, you're done for. No, that was always the I'm not here to condemn. Justice will be served and we rejoice in that. But he's here, and, and he's now doing great things. 
And he says, he bore our griefs. He carried those sorrows. And we despised him for it. We, we thought, no, this guy's just smitten of God. And they said that to him from the cross, right? Physician, heal yourself. You saved others, now save yourself. You're stricken. You're smitten. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Interesting idea here. So he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and he was chastised for our peace. And then his wounds, we find healing. This is not the, the signs of an angry God. This is not the signs of an idol that demands a, a human sacrifice. This is a God that cares. That he was pierced. The nails, the thorns, pierced, pierced through for us. That he, he, he bled out for us. That he was pierced for our transgressions, going where we shouldn't go. Double crossing is kind of the idea there. For time's sake, we'll look at this one, though. He was crushed for our iniquities, our avon. It's the, the Hebrew word there is avon or ava in different tense. Um, tenses. And the idea of avon is perversion. And so you might have read in the Old Testament he, that he visits the iniquity uh, of, of the sinners, or he visits their iniquity upon them. You guys familiar with that? Or visits, sometimes it's translated, visits the sin upon them. But it's that same word, avon. And the idea of avon, of iniquity, is this. It's perversion, that we pervert away. God says we should love people and treat them well. We treat people rude sometimes. And so just as a person who always treats other people rude will eventually find themselves alone, that would be the visitation of their avon. Does that make sense? In other words, Avon is when you do things crooked and it eventually crumbles and presses on you. And so the idea of God visiting the iniquity upon someone is that he allows the negative consequences of sin to oppress. Does that make sense? So when it says here, if we come back to this, and it says here that uh, he was crushed for our iniquities, the idea is that he was the one that was crushed by the perverseness of our lives. But then he's going to go on this, and he's going to say this, verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the avon of us all. So every one of us, and of all time, in all places, who did and will ever live, that avon, the consequences, spiritually and sometimes even physically, of our sin, were laid on Christ to crush him. See, the reason the cross is such amazing and good news is not because Jesus just kind of like talked the Father off a ledge of wrath, but that he, in fact, actually took our sin upon himself. The New Testament says this, that he who knew no sin, knew intimately sin, became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took our place and absorbed our sin as if he had a sin nature, which he did not, in exchange for us receiving his nature and his righteousness. 
That's why you might have in a book or other places heard people say, the exchanged life. He exchanged what we had to offer, which was hatred and anxiety and depression and addiction and destruction. And he in exchange gave us righteousness. Righteousness simply being the idea, I'm right with God. So he laid our iniquity on Jesus, the Father did. Which means we bear our iniquity no more. That's the good news of the gospel. You spiritually do not bear your iniquity anymore if you've placed your trust in Jesus. The reason, then, that Satan hates this message is because of when we truly believe and receive what God has for us, that I'm right with him, I'm at peace with him, and more importantly, he's at peace with me. All of a sudden, there's a radical liberty and a joy and a peace. And that's where you can look at things like nations and politics. And as C.S. Lewis says, those are like the life of a gnat to me. In other words, they're, they're nothing to me. I can love my nation and all that, but taxes and economics... I don't, have to, I don't have to consider that because God has peace with me because Jesus suffered for me because Jesus is working now in me and he's building a kingdom and he's working in every one of us. And when you start breaking down the realities that he bore iniquity, what we deserved of our, of our perversion, that he, it was laid on him, what should have been laid on us and that I don't have to, I, I don't have to pay for it then all of a sudden I'm free. I can walk out of here and I'm free. And he sees me. This is not when, when I'm doing good, right? It's easy to skip out of here when we're doing good and we go, well, I read my Bible some and I, I uh, you know, gave some money to some charity and then said a nice word to someone, so I'm gold. But it's when we're stuck, when we're rebellious, he says, I'm not laying your iniquity on you. He forgave our sin, past, present, and future. He's cleansed us from it. Now, when we sin today, it still costs, right? So it's, not, it's not as if sin never has a, a consequence when we, when we do that today. If we ignore God in our life, it will have consequences. But one of those consequences is not his condemning. He's not going to condemn you. Paul says that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. So God's working in your heart, even when we're stuck in our sin, it's not condemnation. Yeah, compassion, the filling of his spirit, the drawing, his voice, he's speaking. He has great things for us. He's going to go on and says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This isn't for us to go, wow, he was so strong. Oh, that was true. But the idea here is that he didn't balk against it. He didn't resist it. He didn't go kicking and screaming to the cross. He didn't come with rage out of the grave at his resurrection. He went quietly. It was difficult. He did in the garden cry out and he said, if there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me. He did not want to be separated from his eternal father. 
He knew it would be painful and be difficult and unimaginable what he would go through to bear the sin of all humanity. How heavy is it for you and me to bear our sin all by ourselves? And he bore the sin of all humanity for all time. And and he asked, if there's another way, Lord, in his humanity, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. He went willingly to the cross. He went quietly to the cross. He, and by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It wasn't justice that he was taken away. It was by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know, in all the world's idols, whether they be ancient idols of old, like Moloch or whatever, or their present idols today of success and money and so forth, No idol has a will to crush itself to help you, right? Big companies with big money, they're not pleased to crush their own to help us. Have you ever noticed that? Like you get, isn't it weird how if you have a problem with like the phone company or something like that because they overcharge you, it's like impossible to actually get it reversed. But if you don't pay like a dollar on your, your bill, like in the, you're going to collections. You're like, how, can I send you to collections? Can I do that? Can I like call the, the credit agency? Like, yeah, I'd like to send uh, Pac Bell, that's California for and from, uh, to collections because they overcharge me $2. Can I do that? No. There's no justice in that. But in this, in our God, think about this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That somehow, in the eternal Godhead, the Father said, this is what my will is, to crush my son so that I can have my creation with me. So that we can go back to the garden. So that we can go back to just hanging out, doing bonsai, and eating fruit. That's what I want to do with my creation. I love them and I'm willing to crush my son to to bring back that paradise that we had together. And Jesus was willing to go and do that because of that value. And when you look at other passages in, in Hebrews and the idea that for the joy set before him, before Jesus, he despised the shame. He didn't even esteem the shame. It wasn't even a big deal to him because of the joy set before him. In other words, when Jesus was going to be humiliated and despised and crushed and all those things, and the shame that he would bear in front of humans being uh, crucified before them and, and just being accused and all this stuff, he despised it. He had no feeling for it. It wasn't, it wasn't a consideration for him because of the joy of being able to hang out with you for eternity. And have a unity with you that you've never experienced before. And will somehow be like almost like I don't want to get metaphysical or something. But like a sharing of consciousness. Where he says we shall all be one as the Father is one with me. Think about that. Our unity with Christ and with the Father will be a similar unity. He says this in John 17. You can read it for yourself. 
is a similar unity that he presently has with his father. But that's the unity that we'll share with one another and with him. But it had to come through that crushing. His will was to see it happen. And he goes on and he says that there will be, by the will of the Lord, uh, excuse me, it says that, that uh, by this offering for guilt, um, that, that there will be a, uh, that his will of, being, of us being saved will prosper in his hand. In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Again and again, we have these promises. He bears the iniquity. He took the sin away. The anguish of his soul, he shall see it and be satisfied. The idea is through causing and judging Jesus, I shouldn't say for causing, for causing our sin to fall upon Jesus, and then for judging Jesus, the anguish of Jesus' soul will satisfy the Father. The idea is that the punishment for sin has been satisfied. There's no more for the believer because it was satisfied in Christ. This is why Paul calls it scandalous grace. This is why we can't consider it sometimes because we can be, how can someone be so gracious? That's not real. That's not how our system works. That's not how we work. How could God be so gracious? Because he is and he's love. And he's, Jesus suffered for us. And it's in our stuck times, it's in our down times, it's in our rebellious times, not to try to take advantage of this, but to remember this, that what he's calling us to is simply eternal life. And the difficult things that we have to process and work through, they only draw us through to further life and relationship with him. But there remains no more sacrifices to be made for sin, not from you, not from me, not from Jesus. He sacrificed himself once for sin. And through that sacrifice, all who trust him were made righteous for all time. That's what Hebrews 10 is, is about. And this was the will of God to make you righteous. It's not to drag you down. It's not to nag you. It's not to give you a tough life. It's to make you righteous, pur purify you through suffering, and then bring you into his presence for eternity. So it's really, it's not a big wonder, I don't think anyway. It doesn't have to be a big wonder, like, why is the message so disputed? Why does the media hate Christians? Why does the world hate Christians? It's a power, the, the prince of the power of the air. It's Ephesians 2.1. There is a way that this world is going, and you and I will never be popular in it. We're never, it's never going to be where the media comes up and says, well, praise God for these Christians. And that's okay. It's okay that that's going to happen. Because that's not our hope. That's not our, our hope is that we get to continue to be involved to show the grace and the kindness of God to all those around us in our life. That we get to extend the forgiveness and the grace that we've been given to our neighbors, to our church members, to our friends, to our co-workers. The fact that we get to be involved and we get to have this amazing message that Jesus suffered. It'll never be a popular message amongst those that reject it. It'll be death to them. But it will be life to those who are ready and willing to receive Jesus. So no matter where you're at today, if you're struggling, 
If you're feeling condemned, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you're not condemned today. He's not against you today. He's not trying to hose you today. He's not plotting against you. Isn't it so we can think that sometimes? We're like, God's just waiting. Well, does he have to wait? I mean, is, is it really difficult for God if he's trying to hose you? I mean, is he, I mean, can he just do that anytime he wants? I feel like he could. If he can't, he's not really God, is he? So these crazy ideas that we have that he's trying to, he's plotting against me or he doesn't have my best for me or he's, he's you know, robbing me. Or it's, it's foolishness because Jesus suffered. He proved to us who he is, what he wants, and what he's doing. One of my favorite passages in Nehemiah is uh, they're kind of, they're rebuilding a wall. They're doing a whole bunch of stuff trying to rebuild in Jerusalem. And they find a copy of the law. It's not a book. It's been a scroll. But they find this, this copy of the law. And so what happens is they begin to read this copy of the law to all the people, the, the people that have come to help rebuild Jerusalem. And they start reading these, this, this copy of the law. And the, the people, they just start weeping and crying because they realize we're not doing that. <laughs> the conclusion they come to is like, we are not actually walking with God. And they begin to weep and they begin to cry. And, and Nehemiah is, is so great because he goes, whoa, 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 stop. He says, don't cry anymore. He says, instead, go share this good news with your neighbor and go drink the sweet and eat the fat, which is clearly my motto in life. But he says, go out there and drink wine and have a barbecue. That's literally what he's saying. Eat the, drink the sweet and eat the fat. And the point is this. It's not a sad day when you realize that God's calling you to repentance. It's not a sad day when God, you read the law and you see that God's, in their case, had, had, a, had a sacrificial system, had a way of fellowship, had a, had a way to interact with him. It's not a sad day when you figure out, I'm not doing it right. It's a happy day. It's a day of celebration. It's a day to realize that he loves me. And if there's correction in my life, it's for my benefit. It's a day to realize that he wants to do great things, that he suffered for me, that he died for me, that he rose again from the dead for me, that he has this amazing purpose on the earth, and I just get to be part of that. And so I'd encourage you, wherever you're at in your walk, whether you feel stuck in your sin or you're the, you know, the sinless wonder, whoever you might be, don't go out of here discouraged because there's literally nothing to be discouraged about. You're at peace with God and he's at peace with you. You're right with God. The rest of it's just fluff. Money and politics and being hated by the world. Ah! Yeah. Easy peasy. We have the power of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness and the fellowship with God. Amen. The rest of it is garbage in comparison to knowing Christ right. and in fellowship. We don't even have to worry about it. So he's doing great things in your life. You don't have to go out of here bummed out regardless of what your feelings or hormones or blood sugar or anything else are telling you, you do not have to go out of here discouraged because he loves you and he's got great things for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you for our Lord Jesus that suffered for us. Lord, we're crazy. And I don't know why we love sin, but we do. I don't know why we say no to you, but we do. We just confess that to you. Or we don't, we don't want to be crazy. We kind of feel like Paul sometimes that we would do good, but we do evil. The good we want to do, we don't find ourselves doing. 
And ultimately, even when we do good, we find evil is often present with us. And Lord, we just we ask for a cleansing, and we ask that you would help us to just work through our stuff with you and being honest and then moving forward. Lord, thank you so much for bearing our iniquity. Thank you for forgiving our sin. Thank you that we're not condemned today. I pray we go out of this place with joy and with peace, uh, not because we feel it, but because we know it. So we just we commit our hearts to you, and we thank you for being good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.